Guys and girls, welcome back then. Tim Davies, Fast Jet Performance. And I've got a great podcast for you today. The podcast is the audio from a film I've just made up of a presentation I did out in Stockholm, Sweden, a couple of days ago for the Safe Europe Survival and Flight Equipment Symposium 2019. I was the keynote on Wednesday morning at 9am uh, and it was a free event. So I did this for free. I didn't charge them for this. And I do a couple of free events a year. I've flown with a lot of this kit that these guys were out there pushing and um, I'm more than happy if I can fit it in to get out there and just deliver content to them without getting paid it's what I do it's fine I can I can accommodate a few of these obviously we've all got mortgages to pay however I would say you're not going to be able to see the films on this or see me present because you're listening through your radio or you're listening through your headset whatever it is um, on the Patreon group I run, so Patreon Fast Jet Performance, Patreon Tim Davies, uh, in the Warrior Academy, uh, I am dropping this film, the full-length 50-minute film of all of this into that group, okay? Quality audio, it actually has the films in there as well. So during this audio, unfortunately, there are three films. Each film's about two minutes long. Um, they do enhance the presentation. Uh, you're not going to be able to see them because you're on a podcast. So if you want to jump into Patreon, there's three scales um, of payment. It's a $5 a month, a $12 a month, or $47 a month. All those groups are going to get access to this film. Okay, So you want to jump in there, $5 a month, then um, thank you for sponsoring me. I really do appreciate that. It helps me to get the content out to you and higher quality content as well. Uh, and that's the Fast Hit Performance Patreon or Tim Davies Patreon. That, that will find you either way. And then hopefully, you know, you'll get the full thing there. If you're in the basic group, then that's for, I think, $12, whatever it is a month. Uh, I'm going to talk about how I prepared for this, how I traveled out there, what I took with me and everything else. If you're in the advanced group, we go into some deep diving about um, stage presence, about uh, how to embrace your audience. It was a difficult crowd to a certain extent, and that's pretty much because of two reasons. The first reason was they had their dinner the night before, and at the dinner, I was at the dinner as well. Um, obviously, everyone gets a bit merry. They stayed in the bar quite late. So when they come there in the morning, it's about 200, I think, the crowd. Um, it's difficult. 9 a.m. in the morning, last thing you want to do is a guy on stage lecturing you. I get that. So you have to have a different approach. And then the other, other point as well was that they're all nationalities over Europe. English isn't their first language. The way I present is quite uh, staccato, and you'll hear that in the presentation as well. So it was really difficult for me to kind of get that crowd moving from the outset. I think towards the end, I think we managed it, but it took a while, okay? So you might be able to hear that within that. But um, this is why this is not going on YouTube. You won't find it because it's going to be in the Patreon group. It's not that I don't want to put it on YouTube, guys, okay? But the you have to understand that without context, it gets a lot of criticism. All these things do. It's not filmed that well. It's filmed from my phone, from the back of the room. Uh, and people will criticize the, the the quality of it and all that kind of stuff. I don't want to deal with that. So it's in the Patreon group only. Uh, and for people that really want to make change in their life, again, that's what you want to jump into. What I will do on the podcast here, and I'll finish this now and you can run straight into the presentation. Um, what I will do is I will just narrate what these films are showing, okay, whilst the films are running. So you'll get that narration from me as well. All right. Uh, anything else you need, guys, jump in that Patreon group, all right? Send me a message and we'll talk it out. Thanks so much. Oh, one last thing, guys. Yes, the audio initially is their own in-house audio being recorded by my phone. It does get better, though, about minute 2.30. So just after she stops speaking, introducing me, I say a few things. And then what I'm doing is I'm telling people that I'm going to be using my uh, voice recorder to debrief. And then I plug my microphone in and then the audio gets a lot better. OK, so listen to the first two minutes and it gets a lot better for the uh, for the next 48. Thanks, guys. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Mr. Tim Davies. He is, his background is as a former senior flying instructor on the Hawk T2. Tim's responsible, was responsible for all students and flying and uh, instructing flying on the target fast jet squadron in the RAF. And he was responsible for 80 pilots and 28 aircraft. So Tim started to write about his experiences so that service could understand the human factors associated with the privatization of military flying training under the United Kingdom Military Flying Training Systems, or UK MFTS. He was previously a Tornado GR4 pilot um, and electronic warfare instructor. Tim combines understandings of the frontline operational task and the training of tomorrow's warfighter. His unique career led him to start his company, Fast Jet Performance, 
teach people about gaining a deeper appreciation of the mechanism of failure and how they can be used to enhance performance of both the individual and the team. Tim is also the strategy director for Aeros. Probably pronounced it's good enough. <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. A company who's designing an aircraft for Red Arrows and sixth gen uh, generation of fast jet military flying training through innovation syllabus and aircraft design work. So Tim's going to talk to us today about to react or respond to the power of the debrief. Over to you, Tim. Thank you, it's very kind. I think I turned your Robbins up there, didn't I? We will succeed this morning, we will. It's a good turnout, thank you, I appreciate it. Um, I woke up this morning actually with this awful, this awful thought that I had this dream last night that someone had put a boat in a restaurant and I was stuck there. And then it got worse and worse because um, it ended up with a bit of karaoke, didn't it? Then when they got a bit of karaoke, so I reckon that in the future what we can do is we just take it straight down to the Abbott Museum. And if you were having a conference at the Abbott Museum, I'd be there. That sounds awesome. I do apologise to the mic guys, it does look a bit strange, doesn't it? But look, something that we're doing here, I've got another mic here you might see. In the back of the room there is also a camera, I'm filming myself, but it's not through vanity, it is actually slightly because I flew jets for 20 years. So, But what I do is I put these things in here and I record myself. So that when I'm on a flight home tomorrow, what am I likely to be doing with this? Apart from reading magazines and sleeping. Where's the aircrew in the room? Legends in flight, flight suits there. What am I going to be doing tomorrow when I watch this back? Yeah, apart from that, smash that royally. You're absolutely right. Um, I'll be debriefing. Thank you for the assistance from that row. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of debriefing. I've debriefed every single sortie I flew on for the last 20 years. Uh, I can't remember the hours, about 3,000 flying hours, something like that. I'm really not too sure. I never did count, to be honest with you. But it's something that I don't see happening in civilian organisations. They do not debrief. In fact, what happens is they go from one catastrophe to the next. They wonder why it didn't work. They're going to have a cup of tea, have a few beers, and they go from another catastrophe to another one. And learning doesn't actually take place. So what I want to talk to you about today is the brain's role in that and how you can actually debrief within your organisation itself to improve your performance. The improvements are significant. So what I do, obviously, I'll talk about me for the next 40 minutes. I'll talk about me for the next two, to be honest. I just want to give you a bit of background about where I came from and why I'm interested in these human factor elements. This is the jet I was on for about six years. This is the Hawk T2. Any Air Force in the room? There are some Air Force here, aren't there? Yeah, okay. I know some of you recognise me. I recognise you too. <clears throat> so I was on this airplane when it first came into service back in 2011. It's the BA Systems Hawk T2. At the time, it was the most advanced fast jet military flying trainer in the world. Seriously, it was. Probably been overtaken now by things like the T-50, uh, some other aircraft out there, the M-346, that kind of thing. But at the time, this thing was, uh, was, was pretty much cutting edge. Um, we still fly 28 of these RF Valley. Haven't actually crashed any yet. It's a pretty good thing. Um, and we just split the squadron of 85 pilots into two squadrons because it was getting too big. So I was a senior pilot on that squadron. I was what's called the Officer Commanding All Flying Training and Standards. I was responsible for the standardization of all these young people whose um, prefrontal cortex is not fully developed yet, so that does make them a little bit difficult to uh, keep alive. But I managed that for six years. <clears throat> this is the office. It's got my name on it, look, up there. <clears throat> right, so this is me about 50 miles south in Wales with two students who are about up north somewhere trying to kill me. I'm doing everything I can to stop that happening. And this is the, one of the last sorties we do on the squadron. The last thing we do is we put a couple of students up against someone like myself and they have to do everything they can to survive. It's actually quite a complicated sortie, so everything that we do prior to that has to be broken down into steps and make sure that we actually allow the fundamentals to grow within that student aviator. So I did a Hawk T2 prior to that. I was a Hawk T1 instructor at Valley. I spent 10 years at Valley. If anyone knows RF Valley, that's sacrifice right there. Okay. Before that, I was a Tornado GL4 pilot. This is a swing-wing messenger of death, bringing mass destruction to the battlefield, and I did that for about four and a half years, I think it was. This is my boy, Ian, my weapons officer. This is us in southern Iraq. And that really is where the photo album kind of ends. So what I'm going to really talk to you about then is a lot about why I ended up running this company and then why I ended up being a strategy director for another company that are very much involved in flying training. And I'm very much interested in what you guys are doing today. That's not to say I'm going to be at your AGM at lunchtime. Couldn't care less, personally. But I wish you all the best. I'll be in town, grabbing a beer. Right, Fast Hit Performance. Started off a blogging site. And the reason I started off as a blogging site is because I wasn't happy with what was going on in the Royal Air Force at the time. 
I just come back from Afghanistan in 2011. We had a lot of people killed out there, unfortunately. I was on the ground. So I thought I'd start writing about it, and I'll show you that in a minute. This is the site here. I do a lot of training services, corporate engagement, whatever that third one says. I can't see it. It's public speaking. I do a bit of that. Not very good at it, though. Still working on it. Always will, hence the debrief. So with this, then, it did start as a blogging site. If you want to go there at some point, maybe not at the moment, uh, you'll see some of the, the photos you've just seen. You'll see the podcast I put out as well, where I talk to young people about joining the military. I talk about old people who are leaving the military. I talk about people in business, in all sorts of work, ways of life, people in finance, all that kind of stuff about how we can do things better. And I also work for this company as well. Has anyone heard of Aerolist in the room here? How dare you? Yeah, legends in the back right corner, back left corner. You're my friends. Okay, so Aerolist, a very interesting company at the moment. Uh, the CEO is a guy called Tristan Crawford. He's my age, exceptionally good looking, just like me. And what he's doing is he is, he's come up with a way of reducing the cost of fast jet flying training. I'm not going to drag this out, guys. I really want to talk about the other stuff. But that, those three aircraft you see there have got the same fuselage. And what he's done with the engine, he's put it in a nacelle under the body. So you can have one or two engines on this airplane. And what it does, it brings the aircraft in at about 15 million as opposed to about 30 for like an M346. And the way he does that is through modular capabilities. Google it later, it's fine. I'm not going to go deep into it now. But I'm the strategy director for that company. It's all about flying training. We're actually forming a sixth generation of fast jet flying training, which is a bit trippy and a bit out there. And it's all social bio stuff, and it's all growing. But that's what I'm doing there. And that's one of the reasons I'm interested in performance. And yes, it is a pretty little aircraft, isn't it? And the one on the right-hand side, to you, good, is the future Red Arrow. We're talking about the Air Force, talk to the Air Force about this at the moment. We are building an aircraft for the Red Arrows. They don't know it yet, but they will like it. And it's gonna be, uh, it's gonna be an amazing airplane. So that's the other thing I do. Enough about me. Let's talk about predicting failure, shall we? Let's talk about four things and recognize the fact that last night we'd had a few beers. <laughs> We don't want to drag it out too much. I want to break it down to you. Halfway through, I play a film. It's a really cool film. In fact, I think there's three films in it, all about two minutes long, but the one in the middle is really awesome. It's got me in it, and it's got a lot of my students in it as well, and all the audio you hear is from 19 to 25-year-olds just trying to stay alive, so it's quite funny. But we're going to talk about predicting failures. We're going to talk about how we can look into the future and try and work out whether something's going to happen that's bad. And this is interesting to us because it saves us a lot of money, and it saves us a lot of lives as well. We know we need to do that. We'll also talk about this thing, ownership, which I really like, and just culture, which anyone in aviation should fully understand. We'll then go on. We'll have a look at the power to debrief. And I'm not going to get you to debrief me, because I'm debriefing myself in two different ways. I'm sure you will anyway, and I do appreciate that. And we'll end up just about reacting and responding on our own brain's role in our downfall, necessarily. That makes sense. Just put the pointer down, haven't I? Good. Breaking the chain, aviators in the room. We all know about that, don't we? Swiss cheese lineup. I'm not going to go into that because that was yesterday. Right, I'm going to play this film. Now, when I saw this film, some of you might have seen it, in a, uh, might have seen it before. It only lasts about a minute, and then everyone dies. They don't die. Um, within about three or four seconds, those of you that fly airplanes can probably predict the fact that something bad was going to happen. I don't want to ruin it for you. But just watch where the hands are. Listen to the engine note. All those kind of things we know and love. And I'll ask questions at the end. Okay, guys, so now I'm playing a video, and this video is of a light aircraft crash. It's seen from within the cockpit. There's two people in it, uh, and the whole point is they, uh, they, they sort of land on the runway, they get airborne again, immediately they turn off the runway um, as they climb, so they put a bit of wing down, and then as they're climbing, they're heading towards a bit of a forest. What happens then, for some reason, one of the pilots in there just reduces the power slightly. They fly over the top of the forest, but the aircraft keeps turning, um, and it goes into what we call an accelerated stall, and then it impacts the trees. I think it was a fatality and they uh you, you probably won't hear this but it impacts the trees now my issue with this whole thing was there was a couple of people flying i could see this was going to happen from the outset the way the aircraft was being flown lack of communication all that kind of stuff and that's what pretty much i tell the audience well, i mean i think you agree that could have gone better um there was a fatality in that actually apparently right so pilots aviators in the room anyone notice anything early on he was flying the airplane. Both the guys were flying the airplane. I could see that straight away when I saw that. So the first thing you do when you get airborne from a runway, point towards the tallest trees. That's going to help, isn't it? So what I'm trying to get across, guys, is I have a big issue with accidents. I don't believe anything is an accident. I believe we have incidents. We have a lot of incidents. We never have any accidents. 
We don't have any accidents at all. There's never a car accident. If someone was involved in a car accident, you really want to break that down and ask them what exactly happened, because you're always going to find someone did something that probably shouldn't have done. So we've got some definitions on the board right now, haven't we? We're going back to school this morning. Incident then. An incident of something happening, an event or occurrence. Makes it pretty simple. We all know that, what that is. That's fine. What about an accident then? This is why I have an issue with accidents. Let's think about that thing you just saw, that airplane thing there. An unfortunate incident that happens unexpectedly. Well, it wasn't unexpectedly, was it? Well, I told you it was going to happen for a start, so that kind of puts that one away. Nothing I saw about that was unexpected. It wasn't unintentional from what I was seeing. And that didn't happen by chance. Genuinely didn't happen by chance. Anyone in this room disagree with me, by the way? I mean, did you think they just woke up and that just happened? And there were things that led to that. And as an instructor for over a decade, I could see straight away, and I'm not just saying this, guys, I couldn't care less. I haven't got an ego like that. But I could see straight away what was happening in that cockpit was not conducive to uh, a proper aviation culture that promoted flight safety. I could see it. I could see it. Point towards trees, take a bit of power off. Nah, that's never going to work out well for you. Okay? And what happened there was what we call an accelerated stall. Just thought you might be interested in that. So let's recalibrate our definitions. Was this an accident? These guys are fucking legends, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, that's a pool party. If you walk in like in a hotel and you see that, you're like, I am in. This is only going to go one way. It's going to be epic. You know what I mean? It's going to be better than the night of the museum last night. I reckon we should have had that meal inside the boat. That would have been awesome. Right. So there's a lot going wrong with that, isn't there? I've got a funny feeling these guys know it. So when you heard that, you know, your boy, your boy Tony was electrocuted in some freak pool accident, you go, I'll stop you there. Let's have a look at that picture, shall we? I love it. And what's great about this as well, not only have they put electricity in the pool, which I think is just sensational, they've mixed that water with alcohol thing, which you know always ends up well, don't we? Legends, that's a, that's a Vegas attachment if ever I saw one, that is. That is brilliant. I think they've even got a barbecue up there as well. They're really going to cook it out. Right, let's get a little bit serious then, bring it back down. So this is a friend of mine, John Egan. He was killed back in 2011. I did his service inquiry, which is called an accident investigation. You can probably start to see now why I have an issue with the word accident. John was read four in the red arrows. He was recovering to Bournemouth, uh, poster display. They'd done a full display. They'd done then 20 minutes worth of flying around over schools. It's what the Reds do to promote the service. It's very valuable to us. And as I came back into Bournemouth, they broke into the circuit from a flat break. They were slightly fast, actually, because Ben Murphy, the team leader, was expecting to do a looping break, but there was this really annoying little Spitfire Mark one on the ground taxing out. And he said, guys, could you just hurry up a bit? Because if you don't, I've got to shut down because I'm a Spitfire and I'm a very old Spitfire and I can't sit there with my engine turning because I overheat and everyone starts crying. So Ben said, yeah, I'll get, I'll get the guys on the deck as quickly as possible. But unfortunately, the break was the most G they'd pulled within the entire sortie and everyone in the team felt it. Everyone in the team. But unfortunately, John... He didn't stay conscious. It wasn't G-lock. I was chatting to Mitch last night about this. It was something called A-lock, almost loss of consciousness. I think the Americans call it P-lock, which is partial. I like that one. It makes more sense to me. The difference between G-lock and A-lock, guys, if I'm flying with you and you have G-lock, once I bring the aircraft back to a 1G state, it's going to take you about 40 seconds to recover. And when you do recover, you might have twitchy hands, but you won't know where you are as well. It takes you a bit longer to work out that you're in an airplane. That's pretty fatal. G-lock is not a good thing to go in, go and have. A-lock's slightly different. If we're flying in that light airplane you just saw, and we did come loops or whatever, that kind of stuff, and you had A-lock, well, I could be speaking to you, and you probably wouldn't know what I was doing. You'd be looking out front. But if I called your name or I gave you a slap, then you'd wake up, and straight away, you'd know you're in an airplane, and you know where you are. So it's an almost slash partial loss of consciousness. This took us eight months to get to the bottom of this investigation. It doesn't help the fact that there's no voice recorder in the Hawk T1. Still, apparently no voice recorder in the Hawk T1, if I'm correct. So it's not the easiest thing in the world to do to get to the bottom of this. So I did his investigation. This was back in 2011, just after I came back from Afghanistan. As I said, it took us a while. But whilst we were there, oh, by the way, if you want to know what um, the Reds look like, heroes of the sky, they all are, look like this. Just think about the airless airplane there, please. That's when I start buying my Lamborghini. This is what happens when an aircraft such as a Hawk hits the ground at 300 miles an hour. It was flat. The nose was about five degrees nose up. I'm not going to deep dive into this. I'll do a whole presentation on this one if anyone wants it at the time. Um, the impact point there, number one, you see is where the smoke die on the bottom. You see the tank it has on there. That impacts the ground. That threw all the diesel 
die all over the ground. He obviously went through a fence. What normally happens with a hawk, as I said, it was pretty level. John was killed on impact. Um, the wings fall off, they're only held on by two bolts, sorry, four bolts. The wings went left, the fuselage went right, killed a swan. And then for the next two days, there was this lone swan going up and down the river as we investigated the accident. So, as I said, we had to get to the bottom of that, and as it came out, it was A-lock. But during the time, we interviewed the team, and I was up at Scampton on the, where the team fly from, on the 8th of November. So about seven weeks after this had happened, and I'm there, and we just finished, we'd interviewed the team anyway, and the team are great, and we've all flown with them, and I know them, and some of them are my students anyway. Some of them are instructors I'd worked with, and they're all good people. And we'd done the interviews, we're going back to get them signed off, and that day, I just had to take the Leeds aircraft, so Ben Murphy's aircraft, which was XX-177, I had to take it flying, and I was going to take it flying just to check with the Reds that what he was seeing was the same as what was being recorded on the accident data recorder. So I was going to do that, and then... Um, this is through the MAA, sorry, this slide here. This is who does these investigations. And uh, so this guy, Sean Cunningham, came up to me in that morning, and he said, Tim, the weather's pretty poor. Can I take the airplane off you, and I'll take the guys across, and we're going to do some other stuff. And I was like, do it. Because if there's one thing a pilot likes more than flying, it's talking about flying. And if there's one thing a pilot likes more than talking about flying, it's sitting in a room, sorry, drinking tea, talking about flying. So I was more than happy to Sean go flying. But unfortunately, Sean was killed that morning. This is what happens when a seat fires. On a static airplane, you can see the aircraft's got mid-flap, which tells us he was halfway through his startup checks, which is what he was. And as he moved the control column, something had happened with the seat, unfortunately, and it fired the seat out. There was a secondary failure that day, and unfortunately, the main chute, I know there's some people in the room that know about this. I'm not going to go any deeper. Don't worry about it. The main chute didn't deploy, and Sean was killed as the seat impacted the ground, never separated from it. So that made me a little bit more interested in what we're doing with our people in the service. Made me write a little more essays, a few more essays. <clears throat> Excuse me, following year, I lost my first students. This was Highwell Paul, the Welshman on the left. Adam Sanders in the middle, who was, um, I worked with him, he was a creamy instructor and a student of mine. And then on the right was a guy called Sam Bailey, who I worked with in uh, Afghanistan. He was a weapons officer. These guys on the left are pilots, they're, they're young pilots on the front line. Sam was a very experienced weapons officer, and uh, unfortunately, they're all killed. The fourth nav did survive. So, I had a lot of material to write about. Right, I get back on the squadron. This is the end of my forming the basis of this talk, guys, and then we're going to move on. I get back on the squadron, and things aren't working very well. My instructors, a team of 12, who are teaching the other instructors, a team of about 40, how to instruct. They're coming to me, and they're saying, look, Tim, we're going to have a fatality on this squadron. We're not doing things right. It had been privatized. It's not going into too many details about that. I'll give another talk on that if you want. But they were saying, look, what's happening with this privatization is we're financially, or the company's financially incentivized to get students out the door, but what it's not doing is getting the instructors qualified. So I said, no, I get that. I asked one of the psychologists to come up. They did a report on the squadron, and then they shut us down for six months. That allowed me to get my instructors trained, and it allowed the students to have some chill time. The squadron's a lot more safe now than it was. That's all because we're deep diving into these things here, human factors, errors, accidents. Right, this is Donald Rumsfeld. I know we love him in this room. In fact, this is actually correct what he said. Have a read of that. It is actually factually correct. And he's actually right. There's also unknown knowns as well, if you want to deep dive into what those are. But the thing I'm interested in, the real thing I kind of deep dive into are those things that I don't know, I don't know, if you know what I mean, so the unknown unknowns. And that's why debriefs are important for us. That's why predicting failure is important for us. Because we really want to find out those things that are going to come and bite us. No one predicted that Sean's seat was going to fire. No one thought that a red arrow who'd just done a whole display where he was pulling up to 6 or 7G was going to go unconscious on the brake. That, that wasn't something anyone ever thought of at the time. And it just happened. And that's what I'm interested in. What's just going to happen? What are you not thinking about that's going to be there that's going to cause some real issues in your lives? Not just in your work, but in your lives as well. The iceberg of ignorance. It's not my slide, I stole it. I like it, so I thought I'd nick it. <clears throat> this is the issue, isn't it? We all know the problems in our organizations, but the boss doesn't, because the boss is just too busy chilling. He's out there, isn't he, doing deals and stuff. How can you expect the boss to know, unless you tell him? It's all about that open communication up and down the chain. And we're going to talk about openness, transparency, and all that kind of stuff in a minute, which I know you're going to love. Next slide. So really, that's what I'm interested in, is failure. Um, let's look at another person who understands about failure. I like this guy. He's called Elon Musk. He's a bit tapped, though. But he's very clever, and he's doing some great things out there. 
he was trying to get a solid rocket booster to land on its legs. That's some crazy shit, isn't it? We've seen those films. You're going to see some more of them now. And it, it wasn't going that well. And so when he eventually did get a solid rocket booster to come back from space and land upright, he loved that. He thought it was brilliant. So because he's not all there, what he did is he made a film about all the times it didn't work. Okay, guys, this is a film that uh, Elon Musk put out then of the solid, record, solid rocket boosters failing to land. You can probably find it on YouTube. I'm not going to give you a link. I don't know where I got it from. But um, they all explode, and the very end of it, one of them does actually land. Um, it's a solid rocket booster. It's coming back from space, and they land on the, on the pad. It's all about failure. It's about keeping going. Even when you're failing, eventually, eventually you'll, uh, you'll get something of value from that. Okay? Got rockets blow up. It gets crazy, isn't it? I love that. Imagine those rockets you make, and they're like, ah, oh, i got to do it again. Right, so that's why I like this. This is what I tell my students when they fail. I don't have students anymore, if I did. It's the first attempt in learning, isn't it? That's all it is. That's all it is, first attempt in learning. If you look out at these entrepreneurs, these people with the big money, you talk to them about their progress, and it will be littered with a whole world of failures. Okay, it will. That's another big rocket explosion, isn't it? But one that, unfortunately, could have been predicted which is why failure is an interesting thing for us. So I think some of you in this room remember that some of you probably weren't born. That's fine. I think we all remember where we were when some of these big events happened, don't we? But um, there was a lot of problems with the rocket at the time, the solid rocket booster. And there was a lot of communication between the manufacturer, Morton Cycle, and uh, NASA itself. And this was the day before the launch on the 28th of January. Some people are really familiar with this. There's a great book, actually, by a girl called Diane Vaughan, um, and she talks about the normalization of deviance. And it was actually that, I took that, and I put it into an essay I used later on, which made the Air Force hate me for months on end. So you can see the pressure NASA are giving these guys who have designed this rocket. They want to fly. NASA want to fly. It's January. It's pretty cold. And the rocket guys are like, yeah, we're not too sure. We're thinking that these temperatures and, and kind of rubber and stuff is not going to do well for our rocket. But So NASA are like, when do you want me to launch next April? And Voikel are like, yeah. That'll be good. It was a bit warmer. And so this pressure is coming out in the press. NASA are saying to Thoykel, I want to launch. And then eventually Thoykel are like, this is embarrassing. All right. So, um, well, I guess if the primary seal doesn't sit, then maybe the secondary will. And I guess they didn't really think about failure too much because it didn't seat, as we know, and everyone was killed. Right. Failure. Big fans, aren't we? I can tell. Brought you all into it. We're all now thinking along failure. You love failure. Let's talk about accountability. Let's talk about ownership, something I'm a big fan of. Let's talk about aviation's just culture. Yeah, we're behind time. Yes, I'm going to speed up some slides in the next section. Okay? I'll talk quicker. I need to listen faster. It's all right. How do you listen quicker? Right, so this is what I like, and this is what I like in pilots as well. I love this in pilots, okay? And when I get a guy say something like, or a girl come to me and, and, and they talk about the mistakes they've made, I know that person's going to be a great frontline operator. I just know it. I don't need much more out of them. Even if they're not doing well in their flying training, they can actually appreciate what they're doing and they can learn from it themselves, okay? They can self-debrief. Ownership is when someone acknowledges their life as a reflection of the decisions they've made. That's hard, isn't it, sometimes? How dare it be our fault? Yeah, I get that. I get that a lot. Yeah, it is hard. It is hard. There's another type of person as well, represented by a green frog. Not a single gram of fuck should be given today. And I love that little guy. So it depends which side you want to be on. I understand that. Uh, so I wrote about it. That was a mistake. Um, so back in late 2000s, I had a tornado out in TLP. Anyone done TLP? It's, in, it's down south in Albacete now, I think, in Spain. When I did it, it was in a place called Floren. Uh, in Belgium, and Florent is this great weather system where it gets really kind of misty and cloudy all the time, but my airplane had a bit of a problem, and uh, I had to, in order to get the undercarriage up, I had to bunt quite heavily. Um, this was published all over the world. The United States Air Force loved this for some reason. I'm not too sure why. Uh, and by bunting, I managed to travel the gear, and the gear would come up, and I did that on my navigator again and again because I wanted the, the, the two tornadoes there to survive and fly for the entire missions, and the engineers kind of were tutting and sighing, but they were kind of along with it, and eventually... Uh, one day I put the aircraft up and as I entered cloud, I traveled the gear and as I came out of cloud, I was like this, pointing at the ground with reheat in and we were well outside of ejection seat. Um, I'm, people that deal with ejection seats know what I'm talking about. I mean, this was unsurvivable, but um, luckily we managed to take some flap and get ourselves away by about 100 feet over the, the little Flemish countryside there. So that was a life lesson to me. I wrote about that. The Air Force didn't like it. 
But they like it now, strangely enough. So um, that's all right. There's a lot of essays like this. This is quite an interesting one as well. <clears throat> this is um, what they were finding in Afghanistan. Uh, any surgeons in the room? I said this recently to an NHS presentation, and every hand went up. And I was like, we're going to skip this slide. We're going we're to move on. These two uh, they used to have a surgeon doing the operations, and they realized that sometimes they'd cut the leg off, or sometimes they'd leave a leg on. And that was sometimes the wrong thing to do. So what they did is they put two surgeons in the room. Surgeons have kind of egos, apparently. But they put two surgeons. One surgeon would just stand back and go, there you go, Tony, mate, crack on. And then when Tony was like, pass me the saw, the other surgeon would step forward and go, have you thought about what you're doing? And that increased survivability of these young people by a significant amount. You see this young Royal Marine there looking over at his mate going, dude, you are messed up. You're not coming out of that one. But the thing about aviation, this is what they'd learned from it, was openness and learning rather than blaming is the instinctive response. System safety is a great beneficiary. Matthew Syed's written some great books. He does some great presentations as well. Not as good as mine, but he does some good ones. Worth reading. So we're seeing aviation creep across in the different cultures. And that's because we don't necessarily have what we call a blame culture. However, comma. This is just culture then. Have a read of that. Okay, and the slide says just culture. A just culture is a prerequisite to reporting culture where people feel they will be treated fairly, are encouraged to, and therefore readily report hazards, safety concerns, errors, and near misses, which provide the organization with vital safety-related information. Right. Yeah. I am saying we don't have a blame culture. It's a just culture. Watch this film, please. <clears throat> I'll talk you through it. This is a guy called Andy Hill. I know Andy Hill, actually. Flying a hunter at Shoreham, I think, back in 2016. Doesn't end well uh, for him or all the people on the ground, unfortunately. People are familiar with this. He pulls up into a, a loop. Um, unfortunately, <clears throat> something's gone wrong with, with him in this airplane. Um, the court case has just been had in the UK. Uh, and he was, I can't remember what the word is, a jury do. He was cleared, in effect, of the charge against him, which was manslaughter by... Um, uh, what the hell was it? I can't remember, I have to look it up, guys, unfortunately. Gross negligence, there we go. Don't know why, that, um, why I missed that. Anyway, Andy survived that. Manslaughter by gross negligence was the charge. <clears throat> and this is what they said before he went to court. <clears throat> so just culture remains. So where gross negligence, willful violations and destructive acts are not tolerated, that's when we start having a look at it, Okay. And uh, the last one here. So that's why they decided to charge Andy Hill with manslaughter by gross negligence. Now, it's a really hard thing to prove gross negligence because in that, we don't want to get deep into UK law, guys, because that's a minefield, believe me, especially for this early on a Wednesday morning. But um, you've got to prove that it was, there was a criminal intent and that it was punishable by a jail term. And of course, how do you do that? And actually what Andy was saying, and we never know if this is true, but we can imagine it was. I did a podcast on this recently, if you want to listen to it, um, was the fact that he was cognitively impaired <coughs> during that manoeuvre. By definition, that's true. Uh, anyone that's ever done anything with, with high G exposure knows that as soon as you start pulling G, um, all the blood comes out of your head and therefore the oxygen content in your brain is reduced and by definition you are cognitively impaired. So he's not wrong. And how do you prove that he is wrong? Because he's not wrong. He's not wrong. So this is a company, Cobham, down south in the UK, or up north as well. Good company, actually. They fly aggressor sorties against the Air Force, and they actually put it on their badge. What a just culture means. This is one of the pilots, a good friend of mine, Pete. So if something happens at the workplace, they can look at the badge, and they can decide whether there needs to be any further action taken or whether maybe just a bit of recalibration is necessary. I think we should be halfway, guys. Or after this slide, we are. A little bit behind. I have rushed it through. Thank me later. Right, behavior analysis flowchart. You might want to have a look at this in your own time. Uh, it's by a company called Bain Simmons. And this is what normally happens with this. Because we don't wake up in the morning, do we, and go to work and try and do bad things. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. I've never seen it. Never seen anything in my entire flying career, 20 years, where someone has intentionally done something with the aircraft. That is bad. I've never seen it. Never seen it. What normally happens is you start on the top left. Confirm that is top left to you. Yes, it would be. Thank you. And then you work your way across. And what happened to me, if you think about what happened in Florin with my tornado, were rules intentionally broken? Yeah, they kind of were. I did break rules. I was young. I was you know, well, a bit younger than I am now. Um, and I knew I shouldn't have been doing that. But you know, it worked. 
it worked. And two tornadoes got airborne, and we were dominating that exercise. We were awesome. In fact, we were the only two aircraft in the whole exercise not to be shot down. Heroes. Thank you. Um, and people were trying to shoot us down as well. So were rules intentionally broken? Yes, they were. Put my hand up to that. Was the inconsequence as intended? No, not really, because I didn't think that was going to happen. Um, could the task have been done in accordance with the rules? Well, in all honesty, it's kind of interesting because was there a disregard for risk? Well, not really, but was the action that benefit the organization? Absolutely it was. That's the reason I was doing it. Not for myself. I wasn't going to do anything else. It was to get the two tornadoes flying so the Royal Air Force looked really good. And what happens, unfortunately, we see this all the time in organizations, all the time. The individual has broken the rules for organizational gains. So if you're stuck to figure out why anyone's done something wrong in your organizations, then look at that bottom right-hand corner and you'll probably find out what it is. It's not for them. It's probably for the team. We're at the halfway point. I think we're dragging by four minutes. We're not doing too well. Not doing too badly, sorry. Let's um, play a film from Valley. Young students fighting people like myself. Uh, it's got a bit of rock music, too. It's going to wake us all up. And get you dancing on your chairs if you want. Let's not do that. It's only two minutes. Okay, guys, this is called Hawk T2ACM. You can find this on YouTube on my channel. It's um, of uh, some students and I and some other instructors just doing some air combat um, people use this, by the way. Other companies use this film. And they use a lot of my material, I'm finding out, especially in the airline industry from the podcasts and stuff. I mean, I don't really mind that, but it's, I'm just letting you know people use this film and it's not, you know, it's not their film, crying out loud. Um, that's up there. You can find that on my channel. Um, Hawk T2ACM. Hawk T2ACM in YouTube and you'll find that film, right? Heroes, all of us. Right. That's halfway through. We've got 20 minutes left to finish this. Half an hour and 20 minutes. We can do that, can't we? Accelerate this speech. It's not that. I'd like some questions at the end, guys. So all I'm going to do is count you through the next bits. And I'm sure some of these slides are a bit noddy, a bit easy for people. So I'm not going to deep dive into them too much, all right? Power of the debrief. That's me being tired over North Wales. Right. <clears throat> why do we debrief? Hands up. Let's do it. Interactive, isn't it? That's what we do. Someone call out why we debrief. I think I've told you already, haven't I? So we can learn. Brilliant. Absolutely, yeah. So we don't make the same mistakes again. Yeah, exactly. Is that a quote just appeared on the screen? Good. Didn't see that. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is Einstein. It's attributed to loads of different people. Doing the same thing over and again, expecting different results. And I see that in a lot of organizations. I see it in medicine so much as well. Anyone in medicine here? There are people in medicine here, aren't they? All involved with medicine. It just seems there's a big ego culture with medicine. Um, and they tend to do the same things over and over again. It could be to do with the staff turnover and everything else. You understand what I'm talking about. It could be to do with silos, little groups of people. Or could just be to do with um, people not listening to each other, to be honest with you. See, I'd like to debrief this guy. I'd be like, we use something called runways, just in case he didn't realize. And I'll sit him down and go, mate, that's a tree. Not being funny. That's not a runway, it's a tree. Don't land your airplane in a tree. What must you not do? Don't land in a tree. Good. Debrief done. <laughs> right. So, what do we need then? Debrief essentials. I love this slide. When I put that up, I thought, oh, God. I'll make that into an ebook. I'll sell that. That will get me my Lamborghini, won't it? Debrief essentials. Um, so what do we need? Well, a safe environment is exceptionally important. How do we create a safe environment? Thank you for asking. Well, these guys know a lot about creating safe environments. I like the guy on the top. I like both of them. But the guy on the bottom didn't really understand what he was doing with the United States Air Force a few years ago. And unfortunately, a lot of people left. Top guy is General Robert Nella, uh, United States Marine Corps. Uh, very clever guy. Oh, both clever, else they wouldn't be there, right? Saying, the Marines who want to re-enlist don't want to stay because they get tired of being around stupid people. They do. They get frustrated. They get tired of beating their head against the wall. They say, you guys won't listen to me and I'm out of here. I'm going to go to college and make a million bucks. And they do. They're not being listened to. I mean, we don't listen to our people. They go and do something else. They go to somewhere where they are listened to. Unfortunately, Robert, apologies, Mark Welsh at the bottom. I love criticizing generals. That's always a bad way of doing, doing things, by the way. Um, he did say, if you leave, someone else will step in. Unfortunately, a lot of people did leave. But people didn't step in. And that was an issue. And he ended up, when he said that, he had 500 fighter pilots short, and then he ended up with about 2,000. I don't know how it is now in the United States Air Force, guys. I speak to him quite a lot. I know there's some people out there that are, um, are getting happier. So they must be sorting something out. So we need to make that environment safe. We need good leaders and we need this. We need to get some deep trust in organizations. How do we do that? Well, we have to have values that are shared. We understand that. That's, 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 no, um, that's not rocket science there. We need people to know what they're responsible for so that they can be held account for doing that. And we need to make sure those lines of communication are open. Again, this is pretty simple stuff, isn't it? But people find it so hard to do. 
So safe environment, tick, got that. Take the ego of the rank off, the, um, the US Navy Blue Angels, when they're gonna debrief, they remove their rank, and they put it on the table, because rank doesn't have a place in a debrief. It doesn't mean you're nasty to the boss, because that doesn't go well either. I've seen young people do that before, and I'm like, stop, he's the boss. As soon as you step outside the room, he's gonna be the boss again, so be careful. But uh, take the ego, take the rank out of the debrief. Okay, we're looking at full transparency, full openness. Okay, it's not about beating people down, it's just being honest, because you want people to not die. And we've spoken about ownership before, it's own your performance. I've done some trips that have been terrible. And I remember when I flew, and I flew late on the Talk T2, I finished flying about six months ago, about a year ago, in fact. And one of my last trips I did was with the boss, and he really was trying to qualify his three aircraft. I was in an aircraft by myself, there was the boss and an instructor, because someone was teaching him, a young guy, and then there was another guy on the wing, and they were doing some air combat, and uh, right down south, out of valley. And the winds were in the wrong direction, and we are at height. And I remember pushing my fuel to the point where, as we go into the merge, I literally closed my throttle and eased up. And I thought, this is not going to be good. And I knew it wasn't going to be good. And as the boss took the shot, then he called me in the formation. I said, I'm going to have to go back by myself, boss. He said, what's your fuel state? And I was like, I'm going to add 20 kilograms to this to make it not look so bad. But it was very bad. And I only, only landed just with the fuel I had. And I'd really pushed that. And in the debrief, I put my hand up and said, you know what? I'm not flying enough to be competent to keep doing this at this level that I'm doing at. I was working in an office in Bristol at the time as well, part-time. I was getting three or four hours a month on the, on the high-end training on the Hawk T2, and that's when I stopped myself flying. I mean, I went for a last sortie, obviously, with a mate of mine, had a good time. Didn't really fly after that. It was a bit too much for me whilst I was um, in the office as well. How do we debrief? This is really simple, isn't it? So there's only three bits in it, put them all up, boom, boom, boom. Right, what did we do well? This is great. This is so naughty because this is true and people still don't do it. All you got to do is ask these three things. What did we do well? Yeah. Oh, what could we do better? Well, how do we improve that for the next time? And that is a debrief. Yes, I am galloping through this particular slide because it is so simple and yet it's so not done. It really is simple, isn't it? Be careful of that. What could have been done better? Because our brains, we love negativity. It's just how we are as humans. It's kept us safe from saber-toothed tigers over the years because they kind of scared us. So we, don't, we tend to like negativity. We get really deep negative. We, we love negativity. So if you start tearing apart that, you know, if you start using terms like, what do you do wrong? Then people will jump in and everyone's going to talk about what they did wrong. End on a high. Bathtub, guys. What do we do well? What could we do better? Okay, how are we going to improve that for next time? Keep it fresh. I think we've done the how, I think we've done the what, I think we're going to do the why, we've done that already. So when do we debrief? There's some tornado mates sat around a field full of snow, and they're like, the guy with the back to you is the boss. So they can uh, either post event, obviously periodically, we all know this real time, you can, this is a real time debrief, they just landed in some snowstorm in Nebraska, and the boss is there going, hey guys, how'd that go? And they're like, boss, I don't know whether you noticed this white stuff in the sky, it's called snow, can't see anything. That's a real-time debrief with the boss involved. Obviously, a bolt buy on Adidas hats, which is good, isn't it? Why not? Every aviator should have an Adidas hat. So again, you don't have to wait for the right time to debrief. You can debrief any time. Make sure everyone knows when it's going to be. Get people together. Get some tea and biscuits. Sit people down. Just ask them what you did well, what you could have done better, and how you're going to improve for next time. That's why we do it, because there's lessons everywhere. My wife gives presentations a lot. She's um, a chiropractor. You might have seen from that video, the ACM, the air combat maneuvering video, what happens to the neck when it's under high G. So I thought it did quite well to marry a chiropractor, to be honest with you. The neck is about 80. The rest of the body, obviously, as you can tell, a lot younger. Um, she says that I have to put more of these pictures in because people like them. I never used to. So I'm putting pictures like this in. Makes people smile at this time on a Monday morning, Wednesday. Right, react or respond. Okay, what's this guy doing here? A bit of road rage, isn't it? A bit of road rage. We know this, and he's reacting to that, isn't he? He's flashed up. All right? He's a bit angry. Okay, we're going to end this now. I reckon I can get this done in about four or five minutes, and that gives us, ooh, about five minutes of questions. So not too many, luckily for me. All right? This is something called a brain. Some of us have one of these. Some of the people I've flown with haven't, but either way. Prefrontal cortex and limbic brain, okay? The prefrontal cortex, I'm not deep diving into... Anatomy and physiology, guys, I really don't need to be doing that uh, this morning. However, one part of this brain is where we have rational thoughts, okay? And that is the part that's called the prefrontal cortex. The bit on the right called the limbic system with the amygdala and everything else in there, okay? This is the things that control our emotions, flight or fight, 
It's um, what makes us react to things, okay? So the prefrontal cortex is what we use when we're responding to something. When something's happened and we take a second and we think about how we're going to deal with that. The bit on the right then, this is the bit that gets us doing like that guy in the car did, flashing up and reacting. And that is why you see failed marriages and all other stuff happening is because people are using that part of the brain. Now, this is where people get really angry with me. It's called science. I didn't make it up. The part on the left tends to be a bit bigger than the men. Oh, sorry, a bit smaller than the men, a bit bigger on the right on the women. And they tend to have different... Let's just say the balance is a bit different between the sexes. I don't want to deep dive into this. But what I will say is, up to about the age of 25, the prefrontal cortex is a bit slower to develop in men, which is why we can send so many of them to war, of course, because they haven't thought about the consequences of their actions. Which is really beneficial, isn't it, for our defense departments to be able to capitalize on that. So what I'm interested in is what these two parts of the brain do. This is a typical scene, isn't it? A road accident. My father was a police traffic officer for 37 years, and he said the one real easy way of getting killed is on the road, especially if you help out an accident, especially if it's on a motorway. So if you are in a motorway and someone crashes a car, your chance of death has just gone up the moment you step out to help that person. Motorways are very, very dangerous places because people are stupid, and they're driving in a straight line, and then they see something, and then they just steer towards it, and then you get another accident that you're now involved in. So be very careful if you step out of your car on a motorway. The first thing you do with this is nothing. Literally pull up, sit in your car, think about it for a second, get away from the vehicle eventually. But the key is to think about what you're going to do because you're about to walk into a very, very dangerous situation and you haven't even realized it. And then the next thing you do is you control the traffic flow. You see how we're now responding to this. We're not reacting and running in there. Even if it's on fire, we're not reacting. That's how we die. That's how pilots die, by reacting. Because in pilot land, nothing is done through reaction. All the guys over there with a the baby grows on, I used to wear one of those for a very long time, understand the fact that everything we do is planned and scripted so that we can respond to things in the air. Because if we start reacting to them, then we die. Now, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius, when they used to sit around working out their Spotify playlists or what's in your YouTube video, they also used to chat about something called the premeditation of evils. In Latin, I could do that for you. My uh, education didn't reach that far, unfortunately. My wife did. And they used something called the inversion technique, which is where they discussed about the what-ifs. They discussed about what about their social standing uh, in society. What if they lost that? What if the house burnt down? What if someone stole stuff off them? I think you get the idea. It was a big thing for them. They inverted. They said, what happens if this happens? And they thought about it before the event. This is a whiteboard plan from some students of mine who are planning a, a medium altitude level bombing to flight full mission simulator at Valley. It's a, it's a mid-flight um, on the second part of the course. So it's, it's quite A-level, as you can see. This plan probably took, about, probably took about three hours to actually plan. The key here, the bottom, the whole way through, they've actually put a piece of the board, this is what we teach them, a piece of the board to one side to write down the what-ifs. All those Greek heroes in the past, their time wasn't wasted, was it? Because we still use it now in military flying training. They're talking about what if one of our jets goes US, unserviceable. Um, what if we get blocked up by some surface missile systems on the route? What if a MiG-29 launches at us? What are we going to do? And they think about it all the way through the plan. So they don't react to these things. They have built-in mechanisms. They pre-briefed, and they know how to respond to these events. It keeps them safe, as we know. I think, honestly, this might be the last slide. That's not a great slide for the last slide, is it? I'll sort it out. And this is what we do in flying, then. As those guys in the flight suits know, we have these plans already drawn out. We put them in books. In my wife's clinic, she's got a chiropractic clinic. It's, it's quite a big one. It's, she's doing all right. And um, she, I got her to write a folder called a crash folder. And in that, it says flood. And it says electricity failure. And it says break in. And it says crazy patient. And all these kind of things. And she knows now, all thought out, phone numbers in there and everything. is also on her phone, because I made sure she had it on her phone, that whenever anything happens, literally, before she goes turbo and often does all this reacting, she grabs the folder, opens it to the page, and she phones the first number, and she works through a flow chart that's been thought about prior to the event because we've debriefed previous events, and we know that that is the right thing to do so we don't react to these things, we respond. Everyone got that message? Good, you can phone me. I'll send me an email, I'll tell you. I'll get it written down for you. And this is something else we use here, so we make sure this is an example of that crash plan in my hand, flight reference cards, emergencies happen. Some emergencies have bold face instant reactions we remember what those reactions are because we know what they are so we can get them done 
because if we don't do them, things explode and people die. And other emergencies, if we did that, we're going to make it a lot worse. I hit a bird with a friend of mine. The first thing we did was nothing. I literally saw his hand move away from the throttle in the airplane. He put it on the side. If he started moving that throttle after a bird had gone down the engine at 500 miles an hour, that engine would have thrown itself apart. And very slowly, he just pulled the jet away from the ground. No one said anything at all in the aircraft for like the first 30 seconds. And eventually he said, all right, Tim. And then I put out the Mayday. And then we became heroes. It happens. Right, we've spoken about these four things. I haven't got time to ask questions. How lucky are we? Guys, if you do want to get hold of me, uh, I know nothing about this. I, I have some really young people that follow me, and, and they just got me on the Instagram. On the Instagram? Is that what you say? I don't even know how that works. So I take pictures of myself now and put filters on it. I took one on the way here from the ferry, and I, I was going to put a cold filter on it, but it was so cold in Stockholm, I, I didn't need to. So you can find me here. I do do a podcast. Um, I talk about these kind of things to people who are quite influential and, and people that have really gone through some interesting experiences. Uh, LinkedIn, by all means. I'm not a massive Twitter fan. Facebook, I do a lot of stuff on, and the rest of the stuff, I'm sure you can find me if you want to. But Tim at Fast Ship Performance, you want to send me an email or something, send me some pictures. It's always good, isn't it? Uh, I'd really appreciate that. And uh, I'm more than happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you very much. Okay, guys, only a quick 20 seconds. As I said, if you want to get into that Patreon, it's only $5. You'll see the whole film. You'll get all this update of stuff I put out there that's not on Facebook, all right? It's not on the podcast, not on YouTube. It's personalized content, three different tiers. Pick a tier, be involved. It's how we progress. I actually go and pay someone. I've just started this month, in fact, to help me improve in everything I'm doing because I believe that by just taking all the free content that's out there, and we love free content, don't we? I'm just going to be the same as everyone else that's also using that free content. So what I want to do is I want to pay for something a bit extra. I want to sponsor to these other guys on Patreon to help me develop myself to get you better content and then to grow as an individual. The other thing I would say just quickly guys uh, for the next 10 seconds if you want me to come and deliver these kind of uh, lectures or these kind of work days at your business get in touch with me all right I do do that I get out there into the business world I do keynote speeches this was a keynote I do uh, after dinner presentations all that kind of stuff all right and I get in there I do a full day's workshop as well if you need me to all right thanks guys I really appreciate it all right outro music <laughs>